This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is a GPS cycling computer like no other, which can unlock your rides to the full potential. James, which Karoo 2 feature stands out for you? Well, Joe, it's Karoo's mapping and navigation capabilities. No matter where in the world I'm riding my bike, Hammerhead says I can ride in full confidence with turn-by-turn navigation, have my route instantly rerouted if I decide to explore a new road, and even find a local coffee shop with its cycling-specific points-of-interest mapping feature. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you have to do is visit hammerhead.io right now, add all three items to your cart, and use the promo code CYCLISTPOD at the checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive, limited-time offer only for our podcast listeners, so don't forget to use our special promo code. That's hammerhead.io, promo code CYCLISTPOD. That's promo code CYCLISTPOD, and get your Karoo 2 and your free custom colour kit and premium water bottle today. Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, brought to you in association with Hammerhead. I am your host, Joe Robinson. With me, as ever, is Mr. James Spender. Hello, Joe. Hello, James. And on today's show, we have a man who recently came seventh at the Tour of Flanders and hopes to go six places better at Paru Bay on the weekend. It's Mr. Fred Wright. But before we get into a really interesting conversation about Haribo tyre pressures and living up north, we are going to go into some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, how are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I've tethered myself down in this wind, this incredibly high yes. wind. Yes, yes. Uh, so everything um, I've tied down like I'm on a boat. Uh, I've braced myself against all the doors. There's lots of chocks in windows to stop them rattling. Um, but, you know, we, we we get up and we go again. It's all right, but probably not. It's not the best cycling weather at the moment. No. I did go for a run and I got lots of grit in my eyes. Oh, why is yeah. that? Well, I was just running down a road where the wind was in my face. Oh, so it's blowing grit off the, the surfaces into your... Yeah, I mean, poor eyes, and you've got yeah. light eyes. So you've got. I'm going to assume that you have sensitive eyes because you have a light blue, a very blue eye. And lighter, think... yeah. So lighter eyes are more sensitive. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm quite sensitive mm. as a person. <laughs> Soul and eyes. Yeah. yeah. So that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, like you, I have light eyes, James, and mm. I'm terrible whenever it gets sunny. I even in you know that like weird overcast where it's bright i do that's the worst for me i can't see can't see a thing um whereas my other half jade she has the darkest of brown eyes like um a black hole and she Mm. can look directly into the sun and it will blink first (laughs) (laughs) well no that makes a lot of sense i remember actually working on a farm in australia with this guy who's obviously called keith because he worked on a farm in australia and his eyes he had blue eyes. I, I can still picture them. And he used to go. He'd go inside into a darkened room compared yeah. to the searingly bright outside. And his pupils wouldn't dilate. His pupils were permanently at a tiny aperture. Wow! It was very odd, like tiny little pinpricks. How so blue looked, he, were his eyes on the Paul his, Hollywood his, and Robson Green? 
Um, they were boot. They were they were poor Hollywoods. They were definitely yeah. poor. Yeah, poor Hollywoods level eyes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he also looked hunted. He looked like he would. You know, he'd do a good turn in Wolf Creek. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, but sorry, we digress. We digress. Like don't like. Yeah. I'm going to assume that the thing you don't like is wind. Uh, no, that's because the thing we all, I don't like. No, 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 no. Because we always talk about weather. Yeah. The thing, the thing that I don't like is, is you know, I've just um, stripped my commuter bike and two your things. Your lovely Eddie Merckx. Your beige my lovely Merckx. my my beige Merckx, my beige Taiwanese Merckx, um, which looked like it's been welded by the guy that was leaving on Friday afternoon. To the best thing about your beige Merckx, yeah. I love that bike. It's a beautiful bike, listener. Is the the typography on it looks like someone who only just realised what paint on Microsoft. I love that. Was... I love that old Merckx logo. That's my. Yeah. It's the classic. It's the classic logo from yeah. from the eighties. <laughs> they've they've completely balls that one up by changing it. So um, did a strip uh, every now and again, like strip down, completely clean everything, put it back together. That is how you make your bike feel like a new bike. Basically, mm. is you, is you just clean it really well and you put it back together. In that process, two things have come to light. Number one, as sensitive as my eyes are and my soul is, my hands are also very sensitive, and cleaning products because I don't like wearing gloves. I don't even know where my latex gloves are. I don't even know why I'd have latex gloves. Um, they It just sort of damages your hands, doesn't it? It leaves them quite dry. Um, but, you know, I did achieve a good finish with a bit of T-cut on the old Eddie. So um, I went old school and got a bit of T-cut formula and buffed out some paint, so that was pretty good. But, yeah, havoc with my hands. So I've been using a lot of moisturiser. But also I have uh, realised that he's not long for this world uh, there's a there's a crack down the world in the bottom bracket. It's been there for donkey's years, but it's now starting to kind of open up. Uh, and it's, you know, one 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 day that bottom bracket is being torn off uh, its stay, and I don't know how I'm getting home. So, did you, but didn't, there we you go. Re- didn't you recently uh, crack a crank on there? Uh, yeah, and I think we can maybe talk about it now because uh, I think Shimano's sort of I don't know. It's been in the news a bit more that a lot of Shimano cranks from uh, a few generations ago have a tendency to sort of fail <laughs> for want of a better word because they're made in two halves they're hollow form that was shamana's always yeah. their selling point a bit like twix yeah very much like twix and so you've got two shells you've got your kind of yeah the the bit that looks like the crank um from the outside you know all the bit with uh, the crank arm and the writing on it stuff like that behind that you've got more a kind of uh, 2d plate that slots into the back of that so you know a bit like two two clam shells two halves of a shell and uh, that is bonded in some way. And that just completely de-bonded um, when I was riding around the Isle of Mull. And I had to go and get some zip ties from a hardware shop and zip tie it back together and pray that it didn't just snap on the way home. Because it, it was like, you know, that would have been game over. No way I'm coming back from that. Yeah. Because the pedal would have just fallen off. Mm. Well, because you're very intuitive and very technically savvy, you were mm. able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to do that. I'll fix um, anything with a zip tie. Basically, yeah. Um, and what are you liking, James? Well, um, you know when you charge your electric toothbrush, which you haven't charged for a few days? All right, little uh, little fact for the listener, and for you, James, I don't have an electric toothbrush. Well, A, this is lost on you, B, you're mad. One of the, <laughs> one, I used to sneer at the electric toothbrush, and then I got one, and then it's one of those things where like it's up there with fitted sheets and central heating. It's just the better way of doing stuff okay what have you got what are you running the panasonic no i'm running all all will be mate by braun 
Always, always. I mean, the ubiquitous, I'm not even sure what series it is. I've had it for a while. Yeah. Um, but every now and again, those listeners out there with electric toothbrushes, you know what it's like. When you get, you just, like, you've full charged it and you've forgotten you full charged it from the night before and you pick it up off his little stand and then it just goes hell for leather. It's so fast and it's like, like the motor feels just stronger in your hand and it is just a pure joy. So I've been really enjoying my electric toothbrush. Um, and uh yeah i've also been enjoying that process of putting a bike back together it really just yeah. is it's just such a lovely therapeutic thing to take a cassette apart and clean using, it using a bit of t-cut as well using it yeah using a bit of t-cut yeah so i've been liking t-cut honestly yeah. i wouldn't suggest using t-cut on a bike frame on a regular basis at all you, well you got me to t-cut my chinelli back i did back in the I office did. a couple of years ago yeah and to be fair it did really take out some of the dinks on it it works incredibly well, but it does it by effectively dissolving a very, very, very fine layer of paint and kind of redistributing it. So yeah. effectively, it's kind of paint stripper, really. So you do not want to be using it on... I mean, there'll be people out there being like, what are you talking about? Never use it on a bike frame. To them, I say, you're probably right, but at the same time, to, if you've got an old bike, you don't mind. To them, I say, I use the local co-op um, pressure washer to clean my bike. That's fine. That's that, and that's that's another. That's literally another massive uh, mis, misnomer. Well, anyway, misleading fact that um, jet washers mess up bearings. You, you, they just don't. Oh, I tell you what though, Campagnolo one inch um, classic ball bearing headsets. Now that that is a part of a bicycle that will never die. <laughs> I've been through so many Shimano bottom brackets on this bike. And the only thing that gets it as bad as a bottom bracket is a headset with just like collecting water and just crap from the road. And this thing, I took it out. I've never taken it out. It's been in there for five years, I mm. worked out. Never taken it out. Smoother than the baby's bottom, mate. I literally could have just put it back in without re-greasing it. But I just did so just out of kindness and out of some kind of like hum- like humility in the face of this incredible... It's weird that Italians it, managed it to looked, do something so good. To, it looked back at you and was like, what are you, you re-greasing me Yeah, why would you take I'm me apart, mate? Up, mate. I'm perfect. I'm fine. I'm literally fine. Yeah, when your bike breaks, take me out and put me in another bike with a one-inch steerer. I don't know if they make those bikes anymore. Anyway, so that's me. I've rambled on plenty now. Do tell me of your life, Joseph, your highs and your lows. Uh, Well, I was, since we last spoke, went out to Flanders, did uh, the Flanders Sportif. The Tour of Flanders. It was grim, I'll be honest. It was, started at 7am. It was zero degrees. Um, got to midday, it was four degrees, wind chill factor, still minus temperatures. There was snow at the top of the uh, Eichenberg and the Wolvenberg and the Leyberg. It was horrible. The wind was biting. I hadn't done a ride longer than 60k since last September. I rocked up thinking, yeah, 180k. Yeah, that'll be easy. Easy, easy. Yeah, I did half marathon the other week. Everyone, by the way, did you hear? Half marathon, me, the other week. Got 120k in, got back to it, and I pulled the pin. No, couldn't do it. Really? Yeah, just couldn't, I just couldn't, I just couldn't bother. And my knee was hurting, but I realised why my knee was hurting, and it's the root of the thing that I'm not liking. Mm. Slipping seat posts. Slipping seat posts? My seat post slipped eight centimetres from ride start. Was there any seat posts left? Well, I have it quite high, as you know. It's a 54-centimetre frame. Small frames have a lot of seat posts. I have a carbon Bontrager XXX seat post in that alloy bike. 
Um, and I could kind of feel about 100k in. I was like, I feel a bit low. Um, and I assume from riding the cobbles, obviously the casse and up the cobbled climbs, I just kind of progressively just dipped it down and down. But I was suffering so much with just the general fatigue that I didn't notice it was because I was obviously riding in a completely different position. Uh, got home and I, I was like, oh, that looks a bit low. Got my tape measure out and was like, oh, that'll be why. <laughs> just slipped, slipped an immense, it slipped a lot. Yeah. But, and I just didn't notice it at the time because I was in a real box. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, basically, the Tour of Flanders Sportif, there's like four lengths. The first two lengths are like 80k, 140k, fine. Then there's like the big, big boy, the 270k or whatever it is that leads from Antwerp. It's basically the race route. Yeah. But then they've like got this new route. It's 180k, but only 180k because you do the 140k route, but they make you do another 40k loop out to Gerardsbergen to ride the Moor. Oh, yeah. it's basically nice. you just go 20k out 20k back on farm roads where it's just like headwind whatever direction you're in it gets really quiet it feels like you're on your own for ages and that i think that's what done it, it weren't the climbs for me i was getting up the climbs fine it was just the the moral like the the mental battle of riding over those horrible cob like not even the cobbled ones the concrete roads with the mm. dung, dung, dung every 20 meters yeah um and I, I love my Cinelli, but alloy bikes are really uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> especially ones that only take twenty five mil tires. <laughs> and so yeah, one and ones that have got you pedaling with your knees up around your ear boy earlobes. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I didn't like. So the thing that I really did enjoy about the Flanders Sportif, or just I'm enjoying at the moment is uh, overshoes and good overshoes because we've had a discussion on here before the bad overshoes you may as well not wear them because they're yeah. still letting in water your feet yeah. get cold but i've got a set that are from castelli obviously the scorpion brand as jade calls them she goes oh got the scorpion brand on today i do that is their official name yeah the scorpion brand uh, and it's the castelli castelli intenso ul shoe cover now, they are £70, which is quite a lot. But I would argue if you're using them throughout winter to commute, they're actually sort of worth the money. Made with Gore-Tex Infinium Windstopper technology. If anyone's used Gore-Tex Infinium Windstopper, you know it is genuinely Windstopper. They're insulated, got like a, a fleece on the inside, so they were Ooh. super warm. What I did really like about them is that the bottom is has a Velcro closure. So instead of it being that kind of limb two holes, one for your cleats, one for your heel, it was sort of open at the bottom, which makes it really easy to get the overshoes on. You kind of hook it onto your toe and on your heel, and then you close the Velcro, and then you do the big zip up at the back. Um, And, I mean, it was dry, so I didn't have to worry about water getting into the shoe. I did use them the other day when I got home, and it did rain, and it did do a really good job at keeping the water out. But... They were very good. Um, I'd recommend them to anyone. They're recommended oh. from zero to fourteen degrees. There you go. Um, but it was mainly the fact that yeah, they kept my toes really nice and warm. Because I think if I'd have if I'd have been there and my toes and hands would have got cold, I'd have probably abandoned a long a lot 
earlier than 120 You would have done the shortest route. Yeah. You would have done the 80k. I'd have done the 80k. And also, shout out to a long-time listener of the podcast, my dad, because he did the entire 180k sportive. Well done, Paul. 58, 57, 58. So he's getting on a bit, but smashed it all out. It took him like eight hours, but he'd done it all. Uh, that's real fast or nine hours yeah you know all 18 climbs 19 climbs I think there's more climbs in the 180k sportif than there is in the actual men's race because they take up the climbs (laughs) that they don't do anymore so yeah fair play to him Um, well done mate but um, look we could ramble on all day about overshoes and sportifs but we're not because we've got Fred Wright to talk to who Went one better than me at Flanders. Only one better in that he finished the men's race and he came seventh. So let's talk to him about that. So Fred, you're back home in Manchester now, but on Sunday, Flanders, seventh. How's it? Uh, is it kind of sunk in? Are you, what, how do you feel now? Oh, I, I still kind of... You know, I went out riding on my bike today and I felt, I, th- I, th- I mean, I still felt tired from Sunday and I was sort of thinking in my head, I was like, this is not, I, I, you know, how, how was I top 10 at Flanders? Like, I can't, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling rubbish. So, <laughs> no, it definitely has, I don't think it has sunk in, you know. It's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty special race to be, to be up there in, you know, and it's, yeah, just been nice, you know, because it's, just have it getting sort of messages and, because everyone was watching, like in terms of family and members of my old my old cycling club, so I've had loads of loads of people to say well done and everything. So that's no, great. And because your your I saw your old man was out there, wasn't he? He was out roadside watching the race, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he was on he was on the Quermont. I think that's they you know there's a a club sort of trip every year to Flanders. They do the sportif the day before and then. Then watch on the Quermont, always in the same place. So the first time up, it's not as stressful as the second and third time. So I was sort of like, I knew where they would be. Like, so I was, I was looking out for them, but I think I heard one go on Fred and that was it. Like, I, <laughs> I didn't actually spot them. There's a photo of um, that some, one of the, someone took of my dad and he is shouting in my ear, like in the photo. And you, I, I, I didn't even see him. Like, that's how many fans were there. It's, it's, good. it's mad. Because that's, that's one thing that's worth noting. So that was your third Flanders, wasn't it? So you did you, yeah. you, you 2021, but obviously they, there was no crowds. So like... No, no. This was your first year of getting that proper Flandrian experience of... I remember Garrett Thomas once saying that you hit the equipment and you can just smell beer and chips and and just it's like a oh, wall of sound. What was, it, what was it like, especially when you was out front in the last last round up up the Quermont what was that like I think the last time I didn't notice it as much because I was just so on the limit and so trying to survive that it was almost like you know you I feel like it's I guess it's pushing you on but at the same time it's just yeah I was in such a hole that (laughs) I didn't really uh but first and second time up it's it's crazy It, it really is like Belgium Belgium fans and sort of do it do it the best I'd say what part of the course um, were you most looking forward to having ridden it before? And which part of the course for riders, you know, for listeners at home, would you sort of say is one to look out for? It's always it's always the Quermont, I'd say. 
It's just because it's such a it's a it's that little bit longer of you know you get a, you've got the it's fairly steep at the start on the cobbles where you've got lots of fans, but then it you know keeps going all the way for another sort of k and a half, and there's just fans the whole way. It's yeah, it's I think one of the most sort of I guess Roubaix similar, but no, it's, there's not many kind of roads in a race in cycling where there's going to be that many people that much kind of shouting and drunk people as well like <laughs> it's, it's it's next level because oh, i went i went uh i think 2015 the year that christoph won and i, I remember tige benute's fan club were there but it turns out i think they were just these mates from uni and half of them oh, okay. were so drunk that by the first time up the quermont they half of them were asleep because they'd <laughs> been on it that much but it's just a special atmosphere on the quermont and just because you get to see you guys come up three times it's it's a bit unique. Yeah, like that's why everyone flocks there, isn't it? Yeah, and obviously you were um, you went off the front with forty eight k to go with Dylan Van Bol, and you got that you got to like have that sense of what it was like to be at the front of a monument for the first time. How how was that? How was that special? It's a hard. I don't know. It, you're so focused in the moment that you kind of don't realize. You don't kind of, re- you know, I, I've only realised that upon reflection because I, I sort of, you know, Jan Tratnik from us had, t- had like sort of pressed on over the Paterberg and then, you know, there's the small, I don't know how big the group was, but there was a group of us that sort of come together and I can't, you know, my my in- my instincts are always going to be, or, well, I've, you know, we've got to follow the next, someone else will attack, so we've just got to follow the next move and, you know, I followed Dylan and that was, you know, Jan's on the radio, like, yeah, Fred, go, go, go. And then that's it. You were kind of in full full focus mode because I sort of knew that I could get ahead. Like, it was it was sort of perfect for me because I definitely wouldn't have been able to follow Van der Poel and Pogacar on the, the Koppenberg. But I managed to sort of get over that with Dylan. And then they came came across to us on the on the Tyenberg, which was, was perfect, really, to sort of put myself in, in that, in that, you know, front group of five guys in a monument. Yeah, it's, it's special. When you're there, when you're like, you're in that front group of five with uh, Valentine, Madawas, obviously, and as you said, Pogacar and Van der Poel, is there much chat or is it just like head down now? This is full tilt racing. When I was with, I was with Dylan and Dylan was sort of like, I think one time he sort of said, yeah, come on Fred, let's, you know, let's keep, keep going. Because he was, he was doing the majority of the pulling, I'd say, compared to like, I was, I was suffering, you know, like, I was just doing my best to try and survive, you know, because I knew, you know, you've still got so many, so many climbs to come, even at that point. You've still got to do, you know, you're, you're always in the back of your mind. You're like, okay, I've still got to do the Quermont and the Paterberg one more time. Like, like you've still got to have, you know, two bullets left for that. So, Yeah, because I guess a lot of the time, you, I've, you know, you would have watched races and everyone's watched races where there'll be a guy out front, 30k to go and then you look back at the results and they came like 40th finished five minutes down because there's so much road and so much more racing to be done that you could explode properly and, no, exactly and go be out of the back properly so for you to manage to the obviously you end up sort of not being able to respond on the last time up the Paterberg but managing to hold on for a top 10 that's like must be one of your probably best rides you've ever done I'd, I'd assume oh it's yeah it's by, it's by far the best ride I've ever done I, you know, I kind of, I think what was so, what was great about how we kind of came into it as a team is, you know, we were all staying, so the team sort of changed up, so we were all staying in this villa. Oh, I heard instead, about instead that. Of yeah. in a hotel, instead of in a hotel. And so we were, we did actually, a lot of 
you know, obviously I'd, I kind of would learn, look at this, the course and like see the, see the climbs, you do a recon and everything, but we were really kind of watching the races, you know, the previous editions, like, you know, it was always just on in the background when, whether you, if you were down in the living room, like in the, in the days leading up to Flanders, I feel like, you know, when you're, you're, you spend so much time sort of talking about the race and how it's going to go, I, I, I've never felt so sort of prepared for a race. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't maybe think I was going to be in that group of five, but, you know, I, I kind of knew, because I was feeling good as well on the on the race on the Wednesday, that, you know, I'd, if I if I was lucky without, you know, crashing or puncturing, I'd, I kind of I had a feeling that I would, it was going to be, it was going to be a good race. And I... I'd say I've not really had that before. You know, you're always a bit like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what my... But I was, you know, I was sort of quietly confident that, that it was going to go well. I was going to say, like, what? how much of a surprise was it and was your performance to you and how much of it is orchestrated by the team? So, you know, kind of within that, are you fighting over the radio to just go and put all your chips in and the team say, no, hold back, that's not part of our plan? Or are you getting pushed from the radio side being like, Fred, you're in an amazing position. You need to do something with this. Oh, that's, we we were on the back foot basically, but from because we'd missed the move. This is, I think we, we're going to we'll be talking about it in this. Uh, we're having a sort of meeting to discuss Flanders after this, so we'll we'll be talking about what went well and what we could do better. But we basically missed the move that went on top of the bear injuries, which is like an early climb, still with quite a long way to go, but. You know, when there was there were fifteen guys up the road and we weren't in it, and you know everything came back together on the second time Quermont, but obviously it would have been would have been better to be there. But yeah, with the the radio, like I don't know, it's a trick. Like Mate had said in the radio, guys, I'm sorry, I'm not there after the second time Quermont. So he's like, it's up to you, you know, talking to me, Jan and Dylan. Like it's up to you guys to, you know, orchestrate and try and sort of play the race. And I mean, we yeah, we, when you've got three guys in sort of the front group of twenty or thirty, you can you almost you you kind of race it how you, you sort of race it yourself, and then the radio will then sort of give you advice after that. But like no one was telling me to go with Dylan because you know you you've got you've got cards to play, yeah. I guess at that point you've got three cards. Like if you don't go, one of the other no, guys exactly. will go and vice versa. Whereas if you're the only guy in that group, or you're looking after, say you're I guess with your your, although Dylan's a really great rider and so is Jan, but none of them are like, I don't know Van der Poel or Van Art, where it's like a the no, exactly. proper team leader out. So you guys can all get your own like like you got in the end. You get your opportunity because you nip off the front, and it's like okay, we'll bet this for as long as it can go. I think yeah, going into the race, we definitely knew that we needed to you know you need to kind of be ahead potentially of those those two guys in particular coming into the, the key points. Like if it's like our, us three, our roles were in that, in that, in that sort of, in that finale. And then obviously you, you sort of play your cards. And once I was in that position with Dylan, obviously the radio was sort of advising like what, you know, what to do. And, and then when I was with the five guys, it was basically just, yeah. You know, I was telling them that I was completely on my knees and they were like, yeah, just, <laughs> do as little as possible and it's like yeah yeah how much um how much are you sort of racing with numbers uh during this process because uh, obviously there's been a lot made of um riders releasing strava files this time around lots of people pouring over Pojkar and uh van der Poels. uh 
power numbers and also even you know down to um strategies of fueling listed on handlebars and stuff how much of those numbers playing into your situation and your mindset at that point because you've all got you know power meters on your bikes and you've all got someone telling you when to be over the radio and a stopwatch going and i think it's it's, it's an interesting one i think you kind of um you in the classics you almost have to eat as much you know as much as you can and in, in especially in the early in the early parts you know i was trying to have 120 grams of carbs per hour that was my sort of goal for the first three hours and then and then you you know you, you try and do this you know you just try and keep doing that basically and um but in terms of like following watts it's you kind of probably would tend to do it maybe at the at the start or like early into the race before you get to the final because the finals are about what you've got left it's it's a kind of race of it's a race of a, it's a bit different to the other classics where you know like in e3 there's a predetermined point almost where you know the race is going to split like this is where everyone's going to try and light it up be ready for then whereas flanders is a bit more like there are lots of these points and you just have to be in the right place for each one and then slowly and slowly more and more people get dropped and then you know the race kind of that's why i quite like it i guess it's almost like yeah it's almost it's sort of like an eliminate elimination race in, in that sort of sense so you kind of have to save your legs you know say you're doing you look at your, your Garmin and you want to climb early on and you're doing, I don't know, 600 watts. You might be like, okay, this is too much. I'm burning too many, too much fuel here. Let's back it off because I'm in a good position. Lose, lose 10 places. And then that's, 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 not the end of, that's, that's not the end of the world. And I guess it's, what, what makes it harder is when you have a guy like um, Pogacar turn up, who, him, he's, the, he's a debutant at the race, but, he doesn't ride. It seems like he doesn't ride to tradition. He'll if he wants to attack with ninety k to go, he'll attack with ninety k to go. If he wants to attack with five k, so does that make you guys race a little bit differently? Knowing you've got a guy like because you know watching it live on Sunday, there was the time he went up the left on the Quermont on the second time, and everyone's like panic. You see people panicking, like some of the other team leaders having to try and jump that. There's the time that he sort of puts an effort in up the Koppenberg. So does someone like him make you guys sort of race differently or are you just still in your own heads racing to how you want to ride the race? I think, like I said earlier, you kind of almost know, I know there is no way I could follow him up the Koppenberg if he goes full gas. Like Quermont, you know, maybe because it's a bit, it's not as steep, but yeah, Koppenberg, you got, you got no chance. So I think that's where you kind of have to think about you know, that's why actually in that in that move I was talking about that went on the um, the earlier move that our team weren't in. You know, you there were some big names there, like some strong guys, and that's I don't know that doesn't normally happen in. You know, you got like Pedersen was there. I, I don't think in previous editions there's been that many big names in 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 a in a front group with you know 100k to go. It's kind of like I think everyone in there is thinking, oh, oh well, I'll be. Pogacar can come to me sort of thing and that's what did happen on that on that second time Quermont you know he had to he went as hard as he could and bridged the gap to those to those guys and most importantly so you crossed the line you're seventh obviously a static uh you you know you you're with Dylan as well who had a good ride you tr- obviously you do a bit of press get in the team bus 
I want to know is what was the first thing you ate that night? What was what was your celebration meal? You're in Belgium, so was it anything? Was it chips, basically? No, it was, it was actually loads of Haribo. You know what I was saying before? What, what type of what type of Haribo? Uh, gold, That's Haribo Gold Bears, actually. Not my not my personal Haribo. choice. Just it was what we had on the bus, so I ate loads of them. What's your personal choice? Are you a Tang Plastics man? No, I like the um, I like any kind of Haribo that are like the red stuff. I think you, you don't you don't really get them in the UK, but I, I remember having them in Spain. Mate. Like it's like called I think they're called like favoritos or something, where it's all different variations of like red Haribos. So you get the you get the pencils, you get the swirls. That's, that's that would be my choice. But gold bears, gold bears it was. Speaking of food, uh, and you know, let's just pretend no one's listening to this. How much? Uh, food on the race do you consume that actually comes from um your sports sup sponsors versus how much comes how much comes out of a, a team kitchen or stuff that you even go to the you know local carrefour and buy yourself well i guess you know yes to begin with i like, I like to have a, quite a few rice cakes that's that's normally the the starting kind of things i'd eat and you know when it's a bit easier it's easier to get down but actually now we've you know our, our nutrition supplier have these bottles that have like a real high amount of carbs in and for the classics they're perfect because you just you know you don't almost getting into the later stages of the race you don't have to think about eating because you're getting pretty much everything you need in in your drinks bottle and obviously if it's a bit if it's a bit hotter it doesn't quite work because you know you you don't actually you know hydrate yourself as much with that with those drinks but you know when it, it was you know it was like four degrees maybe in in flanders so it was absolute i i can confirm it was absolutely bolted i rode the sportif on saturday fred and there was snow at the top of some of the climbs and i was like i, I what am i doing <laughs> you need to, you need to some c90 which is what i'm talking about from our from never second our nutrition suppliers how how do you prep for that over you know you're manchester base obviously you can almost guarantee you've got some cold weather coming your way most of the year but at the same time you know, I've ridden in Flanders. There is not many places on earth that compare to it in terms of just its sheer consistent kind of exposure, the brutality of just constant like chipping away at you bergs from short little ones to longer ones, and then the cobbles. How do you emulate that in the build-up to a race like Flanders? I guess, I guess you kind of because Flanders is at the end of a block of lots of classics, so you almost sort of build in to the to the classics, that classics block, you know, like a, like E3 and Warrigan and Get One Again, they're all, you know, it's all similar kinds of efforts on, on I guess, yeah, similar, similar kinds of climbs. And, you know, in the, in the sort of two weeks leading into, you know, you're almost thinking about the classics, you know, month, you're thinking about it months, you know, a month, two months before, because obviously I had, did Paris-Nice and then the classics. So you're almost like Paris-Nice is where I'd get the final bit of base for the classics. And then before Paris, I guess I was doing lots of just shorter, intense intervals. Luckily, in in the in the peaks, there were so many short, steep climbs that yeah, you just it's pretty easy to whack out the sort of efforts you need. In terms of cobbles, it's a bit more it's a bit more difficult. There's one there's one climb just out of Audley Edge, but I don't really do it that much. I've always wanted to get the KLM there. Yeah, because there's a quite a few up in. Um up your way I know there's like a really steep one in Halifax it's like 30% I don't even know if it's 
if it's rideable. But the steepest, the one that's like maybe even the steepest hill in the world is that. The, is that the Hovis Hill? It used to be in the Hovis advert. There's that cobbled one, isn't there? Somewhere up north. I don't, I don't know. And then there's one called Corkscrew, which I've heard hard. Corkscrew. I've never done anything. I'll tell you what you do. Oh, is that is you... that south? Is that south in um, in Surrey? Oh, there's there's one. There's loads down. So. I mean, we haven't touched upon it yet, Fred, but you're originally from South London, which, as we all know, is the perfect place in the world yeah. to grow up to become a Tour of Flanders champion because you can't <laughs> ride for more than a kilometre without hitting 20% climb. No, it's true. So, um, but one thing I think you don't appreciate, and this, I don't know if this is the same in your racing, is the lack of hedges in Flanders. And I might sound silly, but when you ride in the UK and you ride through the lanes, through country lanes, you normally got that sort of like bit of protection from, from the wind and the hedge. But when you're at the top of a berg in Flanders, there's no hedge. So it can be like 2K of open road that you're just getting battered by crosswinds, headwinds. And that, because I remember like, you know, it's, it's famous. Everyone says, Magnus Baxter says it on comms all the time, that the hardest bit is actually when you get over the top of the climb because it's flat, it's not descent. And you've got to get back on the big ring. So how hard is it to not only get that up like the Koppenberg, but to get back on the big ring, back up to like 40k an hour? What's that like? Especially when you're not in a group. No, I think, you know, you were saying on the Koppenberg, that was almost one of the hardest. It's always the hard. Yeah, you're right. It's always the hardest points. You know, you've, you've just done the climb. You're like, you've almost got to convince you, you, you know, where... I think, you know, where the, where the best attacks are made, is, is it in that moment? Because everyone's like, oh... Um, the climb's done. Let's just, you know, but if you can sort, of, if you can go there, then you're you're laughing. But it's it's a it's a mental mental battle because it's yeah, like you like you said, it's the it's the hardest point. And I can think of loads. I can think of so many roads in Flanders where, you, yeah, you get to the top of a climb and it's like, oh, you got some crossmen coming. But that's why knowing the roads for Flanders is so important because you know, you know, you know where the wind's coming from. So you're like, hang on a second. If when we get to the top of it. It's going to be a crosswind. Oh, so I'd better be a bit further in front for this climb. And you mentioned it earlier. Um, rather than being in a hotel this year, your team rented you out in basically like a big Airbnb in Flanders. And um, obviously, when you do a big block of races and stuff, and and traditionally you'd be all put in a hotel, it can be kind of like a bit, I guess, a bit cabin fevery. Was there? A, did it make kind of a bit of a difference, like in terms of how relaxed the team was that you were? It had a bit more of a homely feel, like you'd have had a kitchen, a, you know, a garden, stuff like that, rather than just sort of living out of one room. How was that? Oh, I, I think it was. Yeah, it really changed the sort of the classic spot compared to compa- compared to last last year. I mean, we had all sorts of weather, but we were, you know, we were having having a barbecue one day, and then then it was snowing the next. Like, <laughs> but no, it was it was great. I kind of thought going into it like, oh. We stayed there on for the opening weekend, but that was only five days. So I was sort of thinking, oh, two weeks, you know, with, you know, you spend a lot of time with these you know, your teammates and everything, but, you know, two weeks sort of more like living with people is it's a bit, it's different, isn't it? But no, it was really good. How did, uh, how did that, how did that two week experience compare with three weeks on the road in a grand tour? It's, it's more relaxed, actually. It's way, way more relaxed because you have these nice days where you, you know, there's, yeah, it's a couple of times actually where you race, have a day off, race, have a day off, and then race. And you know, you just in in a day off, we just ride into Courtrai, which is a really nice city actually, and just you know have a coffee, come back, and then you just you know chill for the rest of the day. It's kind of you don't you just don't get that in a Grand Tour. It's, even on the rest days, it's not 
it's not the same as, as those those sort of rest days, like I was saying. And before we move on to uh, your next ambition, which I guess is going to be Roubaix in a week or week, what's that, 10 days' time, um, what was your what was your bike set up for Flanders like? Because obviously your teammate Matej made headlines at Sam Remo recently with his with his mountain bike. He's dropper post and he's <laughs> so. What 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 are you going for? Are you getting a you going for thirty two mil tires and uh, can't leave a brakes or are you, what are you going pretty standard? Fairly standard. I, I for the Flanders I went. I've gone. I've sort of had ditched the aero bar and gone for a bit more of a standard standard handlebar which I quite like for the cobbles the rest kind of fairly standard with what you know with what other teams are using you know slightly you've got the wider wider tubeless tyres which which is great but yeah other than that that's that's it it's the, it's the wider tubeless tyres and the normal handlebar nothing else really are you setting your PSI or are you letting the mechanic do that oh no I'd, I'd normally you know they normally ask what you what PSI you, you want and to be honest, I just copy whatever Heino does. Heinrich Hauser, that's a good he's idea. Been, he, he's, he's, he's been around for long enough and he's always banging on about tyre pressures. So, I, 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 you know, I've, I've now kind of known what I like, you know, from, from, from copying him. But, yeah, most of the time it's just like, yeah, okay, I'll just have what, I'll have what Heino's got. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, are you now um, a tubeless convert? Oh, 100%. 100%. Although I was thinking about it earlier, I haven't actually punched yet in training. And I think, because I also have tubeless wheels for training. And I reckon as soon as I puncture my tubeless in training and have to take the tyre off myself, that's when I'm going to be like, no, I hate this. Because... Oh, mate, when you're covered in a load of sealant and, <laughs> and you're, you're like 50k in, from yeah. home, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> then it's not going to be the one. But other than that, I think that, yeah, I think it's great. They're great. Did the, I was going to say because uh, Sonny Cabrelli won. Um, I think probably the first um, first major race, first monument certainly with tubeless tyres. Uh, the end of last season, doing a late Paris Bay. Did that change your kind of or the team's ethos um, around tubs uh, tubs versus tubeless? Um, was that the kind of turning point? I think so. Or it might have even been earlier in the season at the classics. I think we were using them. We were using them this time last year. So I think it might even have been then because we were... But I'd already done, in 2020, done a Roubaix recon before it was cancelled with with those same tyres that Sonny had used. And I remember, you know, the only ever, other times I'd ever done Roubaix was as a junior with... I think I had... I think I had, like, those Vittoria Parve tubs. But they were 25 and I would have had them pumped up way too hard. So doing the cobbles with those tyres, I was like, wow, this is this is not, not as bad as I remember. How much kind of choice do you get in your equipment versus, you know, in, in terms of you getting to choose from um, the service course tyre size um, or handlebar type versus the team saying this is just what we've got on hand? I think that's what's, that's what's nice is the team sort of, I think it's kind of evolved. So now that you do get a bit more of a choice. But to be honest, I think in, in those classics races, when you've got, you know, normally everyone just does the same as what like Matei or Heino does because they, they know, you know, <laughs> you know, those are the guys that those, you know, those are the guys that, that know. So we kind of sort of all, you know, like even before, before Flans, I can't remember what size I was choosing, but I was like, oh no, maybe I'm going to try this. And then all of a sudden we were all just on the same all on the same width, so 
But do you think now that um, obviously you weren't there, but uh, uh, Morovic being on your team and the 180 mil disc rotors that Joe just alluded to, the dropper post, you know, he's two steps away from a mountain bike right there. Is that going to change how you guys set your bikes up for similar races? Or are you all looking at him being like, you're mad, we can't believe that paid off? I don't think I'll be using a dropper post, but I do, I have so much respect for the way Matei was talking about it in the months beforehand, the way, you know, like it was all, you know, he, he created the whole plan in his head and he, he you know, he, he made it all happen. So no, fair chapeau to him because that was, that was something special. And um, before we move on to sort of how you got into cycling, Fred, one more, uh, obviously next weekend you're going to Paris-Roubaix. Um, you're the defending champions as a team, but obviously Sonny won't be there. Firstly, have you ch- have you chatted to Sonny recently as a team? How's he getting on? And two, what's your personal goal from Roubaix? And is it for it not to rain as much as it did last year? I think we we all spoke to him in, when we were out in Belgium, and he no, I think he's 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 good. He's with his he's with his family now. I think so. You know, thoughts are going out to him because he's must be. I can't even imagine, but. You know, we're going to try and do, you know, repeat what he did in um, in October. And I I did it in, you know, I did it in the rain and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I would don't think I want it to rain. But I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd mind. Like I was quite scared, I think, last year with the rain. I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is like, I'm just, you know, because we watched the women's race and it was like, oh my God, they're just, you know, it just looks like carnage, but actually, it I'd say it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Will you be uh, Will you be WhatsApping Roger Hammond, who was your DS in twenty uh, one? Is that right? Yeah. And who is still, in terms of on the male side, the highest finishing Englishman? I think also Brit uh, at Paris Bay, finishing third in the early two thousands. Lizzie obviously being the top finishing Brit, having won the thing. But are you going to be talking to Roger about? How to how to better him? I, maybe maybe I will. Maybe I'll drop him a message. I feel like, yeah, my the, my chances of you know my odds have, have increased after after last weekend. But no, we shall see. We shall see. Did he did he have a kind of influence on you as a rider? Um, you know, pushing you into into classics, into being potentially a British classics champion. Oh no, definitely. I really, you know, I really like working with him. He's a he's a great guy, and he's so, you know, he's full of loads, full of so much sort of little kind of nuggets of knowledge about the classics that you kind of wouldn't get from someone who hasn't raced them at such a such a high level. So, no, I uh, no, I really see that's that's where I want to, you know, want to be in the in the years to come. And I think Sundays are, yeah, you know, was a was a sort of. You know, I'm sort of, you know, there's, you know, I was getting loads of messages from people saying "well done" and stuff, but I'm almost a bit like, well, no, actually, <laughs> you know, seventh is great, but I was still a little bit gutted. I know I don't think I could have done any more, but I was still a little bit gutted. I wasn't on the pod- wasn't on the podium, and you know, I think it's it's only a sign for for better things to come in the future. Speaking of which, um, your two roommates are so you live with Ethan Hater, right? Yeah, and Matt Walls. So I don't, Hater, I don't right? actually live with Matt anymore. He he moved out a few months ago but so Matt obviously who won gold in Tokyo last year rides for Bora um I remember like an article a couple of maybe two years ago that was about British cycling 
kind of dying with like Geraint Thomas, Froome, Wiggins, Cavendish all getting a bit old. But then I like look through uh, pro cycling stats as I was saying, there's yourself, Ethan, Matt Walls, Ethan Werner at quick step. You've got Jake Stewart and Lewis Saski at Group um, Armour. Ben Turner, who had a really good race as well on Sunday. You've got Ben Tarlett, who, again, another super strong rider from southeast London slash Kent, obviously, and um, Tom Pidcock as well. So there's a new crop of British racers in their early 20s that are looking really good, but potentially for a different style of race, whereas previously it was about Grand Tour winning. Have we got a new crop of riders who could be challenging for things like Roubaix, Flanders, and Milan San Remo now? Oh, I definitely, definitely. I really, I really think so. Like with Jake and Tom, and even the guys that are coming up that you know you wouldn't have mentioned because, but yeah, the, there is so much. You know, there's already a lot of talent, and there's already a lot more coming through as well. And that only just pushes it, pushes the the guys that are already there. You know, pushes them to do to do better. Like, you know, you say you got you know like Gary Thomas and sort of that era of British cycling, but it almost feels like this. I, th- I think in you know in five five years time there's going to be so many more. It's going to be you know maybe not necessarily people winning. You don't you never know. You know there there could be another British winner of the Tour de France in the next five years. But there's certainly going to be a lot more just British pros in general winning all over the all over the place than than there has ever been before. How much do you do you guys chat a lot in the bunch? Because obviously a lot of you um race together. At- Obviously, like under twenty three level, junior level, work, stuff like Tour de Lavenir, and then there's you know you raced with Ethan Hater and Matt Walls on the track. So do you guys chat a lot in the bunch, or is it like game face on when they're in their NES gear and you're in your Bahrain jersey? Oh no, there's there's always time at the start of races when the brakes gone or in a neutral where you you, you chat to chat to a British a British face. I, I get the feeling that there's you know there's always a there's almost always two British riders at least in a, in any race. So, you you know, there's always going to be someone to talk to, whether you're doing, I don't know, the, the Saudi tour or, and yeah, or Sam Rainbow. Like, it's, yeah, there's, there's always another Brit doing it. Do you sort of, do you sort of seek, do you seek each other out in that regard and stay together even though you're on different trade teams? Or is it a bit like, you know, when, when you're out riding, uh, probably a long time since you've done this, but you know, for Joe and I doing a sportive or something, you just find yourself next to somebody, and invariably they just become your mate for the day because they're riding at the same pace. That sort of happens in in in, in racing already. You know, like if you're in a groupetto and you're you you sort of next to someone, you end up. It's quite often you end up depending on how knackered you both are. You quite often end up just chatting. Have you made any good mates in the peloton through that? That you didn't expect to. I wouldn't say good mates, but you know, you, you end up chatting to loads of different people. And how how um how is it living with obviously Matt? You said Matt's all lived out, but you and Ethan like both getting really good results now. Is there a bit of like interhouse rivalry going on between the two of you now? Well, I mean, I <laughs> I've not actually won a pro race yet, and he's won about twelve or something stupid. So I, I, there's you know, I, I mean, seventh in Flanders is good, but I've got a lot of a uh, lot of wins to to catch up to catch up on but no it's it's not it's you know I've I'm, I've been living in now for over two years which is crazy because you you both moved up from you're both from similar parts of South London 
how comes you both moved to Manchester as opposed to, I don't know, somewhere like really warm, like Nice or Girona? What what attracted you to go there instead? You know, I've got a good group of friends here. It was kind of, I still maybe want to do a bit of track. So there was, you know, for him, he was always going to move here because of the Olympics and the, and the track. And I, can't, I needed somewhere to sort of live at the same time. So he was like, oh, well, you can come and live. You know, I'm getting this house. You can come and I'll be your landlord. You can come and uh, <laughs> you can come in and live here as well. So I was like, oh, no. the circumstances at the time just sort of led me to be to be here. And you know, I've I've you know, there's a good group of guys that would want to go for a ride here. Like, there's quite a few pros that live out here. And yes, yeah, I mean, the weather's not great, but when the weather's good, I, to be honest, I I wouldn't really. I'm perfectly happy training in the peaks. And even when the when the weather's crap, I'm I'm training in the peak. So do you end up do you end up training most of the time as well together, even though you're in different teams? It's actually been a while since we've trained together, just because of races and going away on training camps and everything. But now we, you know, with it, you know, it's us to go and meet others. We got you know like I've got a meeting spot, and no, it's a good. It's, I've got a great group of friends here, basically, and I'm. To be honest, I'm pretty happy living here for the, the near future. Maybe not necessarily in this house. I'm sort of looking myself to get in a place, but yeah, I'm I'm perfect. Perfectly happy here. On, on on a technical note, what's um what's the the best thing about living up north and the worst? What's the what do you miss about London? I don't necessarily miss London. I just miss just Hearn Hill where I grew up. I'd say now the the training here is so much better than it than it like like you sort of said sort of said before South London is you know you do you, I always was doing the same 30 minute ride out into the Surrey Hills and that you know that even now when I'm back and I have to do it I'm like wow I, I used to do this as a junior I used to do this every time I trained I can't believe it there's only so many times you can go up Liam's right yeah exactly exactly but, <laughs> and uh, is there as much um James will attest to this because he comes and rides down where we're from a bit is there as much fly tipping up north as there in there is in Kent and South East London? Oh no, there's there's nowhere near as much. The amount of times you'll turn a corner where you know in in Kent and there'll just be like four washing machines that have been burnt or a car. It's always on bed. It's always on Bedlstead as well. Yes, I seem to remember. <laughs> there's always something some on Bedlstead. Yeah, but there's no not in the the peaks are lovely. I'll tell you that. But conversely, though, what is the quality of the average fitted kitchen or bathroom in the peaks? Because in Kent, presumably, there's an incredibly high turnover because <laughs> you often see avocado sweets just on the side of the road. So someone's getting that new tub and, and that new uh, <laughs> that new toilet. This is true. This is true. Before we go, I've got, we've got two more questions that I want to ask. First of all, what's the most pointless piece of cycling kit that you've personally ever bought? And who is your biggest cycling hero good the first so the first question was the most i bought i think it was last year or the year before i bought some overshoes that there's i can't remember what the website's called but they sell like old retro cycling gear and i bought some like nike some old like nike overshoes just like neoprene ones but because they're quite old that you know I'd, I'd, I'd never wear them i just bought them because i thought they you know, it looked quite cool with the, the swooshes on. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll get those. And I, I, I've never never worn them, maybe for one calf ride. But yeah, I'd say that's probably the most pointless bit of cycling equipment I've, I've bought. 
And then I can hear a... I don't know. I, I think I'd have to just go... Kind of just go with Wiggins because just in that in that sort of 2012 era when I was really, you know, going to sort of, I was sort of 12, 13 years old and going to the, the velodrome the whole, all the time and just riding my bike, having fun. It was always like, oh yeah, Bradley Wiggins, he came from this place. He, he also, you know, trained here or whatever. So it was kind of always like, oh wow, I can do what Wiggins did. Good answer. Um, Fred, thanks very much for joining us. We'll let you go. Good luck at Roubaix. Oh, well, good luck at Amstel first and then good luck at Roubaix. Cheers. There we have it. Mr. Fred Wright, the Wright stuff. Um, no relation to Mark Wright uh, or... Ian Wright. Even Ian Wright. Does share a name with... With is a relation of Phil Wright, his dad, who is a semi-famous actor who's been in EastEnders, Line of Duty, called the Midwife. There you go. Also commentates at Hearn Hill, so I'm assuming we didn't. I was going to ask him if his dad, if his dad had called his own race, his own son's race victory, at any point in time. I'm going to assume he has. I'm going to assume he has as well. What a lovely tale. Yeah, that's lo- really nice. And his uh, granddad, I also learnt, is a playwright. So maybe one day he'll get a play written about him. But until such time, um, yeah, really good ride from Fred at Flanders. Uh, this is going out before Paris-Roubaix. He might improve on that result uh, and do really well there. Wouldn't be surprised if he did. And if he did do that, James, he'd be riding on a set of tyres that you'd very much approve of. 30 mil. 30 mil? I mean, it's probably 2 mil too, too narrow these days. Give me th- give me 32 mils. Yeah, no, that... 7 mils too wide. Yeah. <laughs> to fit in the frame I ride. That's about 11 mils too wide for you. Uh, no, and uh, just just at the end there, I don't know, at this stage, we don't know if we'll leave it in or not, but Fred did just say that he was running three and a half bar at uh, Flanders, which is 50 PSI. And 50 what's, PSI. 50 PSI. And what's Fred's weight? Should we look Fred's weight up? Do you want to have a guess? I'm going to, do you want me to, I'm going to guess, having just seen him from his shoulders upwards. Yeah. I'm going to say 76 kilos. Oh, you're not far. I mean, we don't know, do we? Because it is the internet, and the internet is home of the nefarious fact, but... Apparently seventy five kilos. Oh. So I'd say I'd say heavy toe. I'd say Fred, you could go a bit lower than that, mate. Only seventy five kilos, and you're riding yeah. tubeless. The thing with tubes, so that's you know that brings. Well, that's like uh, Valverde rode fifty five psi at Strada Bianchi. There you go, mate. He's like sixty five kilos as well. They're all they're all still too too high. Blown pressure. away in the wind we're currently having. <laughs> yeah, very. I can hear it outside. Hope it's not on the, this recording that wind. But the, the shouting of a Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sound travels That'll in weird ways in a high rise. Let me tell you. But um, <laughs> but no, I'm a big fan of their adoption. Merida's adoption, not Merida. Sorry, it used to be Bahrain Merida. Now Bahrain Victorious. Bahrain. The, the name's times at Victoria. Yeah, the name's working out well, lads. Should have yeah. called ourselves that ages ago. They're doing really well, aren't they? I mean, I'm going off on all yeah, kinds of tangents really, now. Really well. They won obviously Roubaix last yeah. year and then won Sam Ramo. Yeah. What are they? The new the new Quick Step. Well, are they just going? I mean, the- Quick Step of the old bar right? Can <laughs> <laughs> hit a barn door at the moment. So we say this. You watch them. Yeah. Do a one two three at Roubaix. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Emulating their Mape days, but um, no. So I, I, you know, I'm big. I'm big, big fan of Tubas tyres, as you know, and I. That's what I'd ride. I'd absolutely push for that if I was a pro. Yeah, because which coincidentally talking about also, quick step. Yeah, go on. I was going to say last year, Yves Lampart 
pat punctured five times at Roubaix in that bad weather because they were on the Roval wheels that you can only use clinchers. So he didn't have tubular or tubeless, punctured five times. He argued that he was the strongest rider in the race and he got robbed by the fact he had had so many mechanicals. Picked pocket by the little puncher fairy. That's a difficult one to say. Anyway, but yeah, no, I tell you, I mean, that's, that's, see, that's what I just totally don't understand with anyone's resistance to tubeless is as a general rule, you can pretty much, you can ride on a flat almost like you can ride on a, a tubular when it's flat. And for all of those might, might flat, might not flat instances, you're way less likely to flat with tubeless. When it happens, it happens, but it was going to happen with a clincher anyway. So when you're riding a race like Roubaix, where you're smashing into cobbles, you can afford to run those low pressures without looking to split any um, inner tubes. So it makes total sense to me. And also, you can just wacky races it. So you can, just at the last, you're coming into the Roubaix Velodrome, you're coming onto those hallowed banks, and you just smash, smash as hard as you can into into the little curb just before you get in, thus puncturing your tubeless tyre, which sprays out in a kind of Mario Kart-style fashion, all in the eyes of your competitors, and then you just roll gracefully over the line on your flat tyre. <laughs> that is something that I've not seen done yet, but I would like to see done. I think it will happen. I could, that's my hot tip for this year's Rebay. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll be interested to know how many people are riding tubeless at this year's Rebay. I think there'll be quite a lot doing that i know i think it's bike exchange have been riding tubeless for quite a while now yeah. with their pirelli tires yeah obviously bahrain are quick step aren't because they're on roval wheels so they they don't they 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 can't at time um, of press they can't uh then there's like i'm trying to think i don't think quick um Ineos will be on tubeless technology at the moment mm, i don't know there could be anyone that you know shimano now doing some really Good duo race wheels. Um, I know that Ineos obviously swapping all kinds of wheels all, all the time, but um, they are technically Shimano sponsored team, and they do a nice. You never know. And apparently, so pop quiz hotshot, and this is probably also wrong because you know, again, internet forums, whatever. I haven't cross referenced this with anyone uh, except a Europe Car PR officer, and they're obviously going to say yes. But apparently, uh, the first first team to ride tubeless meaningfully in a World Tour race was strangely Europe Car in the early 2000s, 2002. Really? Yeah. So you've got I'd... some of the most resistant of riders to technology. Wow. Yeah, racing on tubeless. Because I, Hutchinson. Oh, because of Hutchinson. That does make sense now. Pioneered, pioneered tubeless Very technology. Very good. Uh, their Hutchinson, is it the four season? Uh, the Fusion 5? No, the Fusion 5. Oh, five. the Fusion 5 Galactic. Yeah. Very good tyre. Yeah, that finally is a good tyre. Early Hutchinsons were like riding on leather belts that had been glued to your your wheels. They weren't. I'm going to say because I know that one of the the other early adopters of tubeless technology was when Katusha were riding with SRAM. Obviously, SRAM and Zip have been a long time pusher of tubeless technology on the road. So when they were riding their canyons with the SRAM red group set and then the Zips, um, they rode a Roubaix a few years ago, and I. I think it was Alexander Kristoff at the time as their team leader, but the wheel uh, and had the. I think he had the like the full tire come off experience, and that put him off. Yeah, personally. doesn't take much, does so it? That was that was a while back. That was probably about four years ago, five years ago. So that's probably the real early days of. You know, he was probably still running about a hundred psi in it. Mm. Um, well, yeah, it's it's interesting to see. As well, it's interesting to hear Fred write his teammates, Matej Mohoric and 
Heinrich Hauser are so um, not pernickety, but invested in the setup of their their bikes. You know, you hear about other pros, for example, Bradley Wiggins, as Rob Hauser's told us before, who literally just get given a bike and told to ride it. Um, so it's nice to see other riders like this. I know that Nicky Terpster, for example, uh, is infamous for sort of being more competent than most World Tour mechanics and sets his own bikes up. Um, he's one of those riders that actually does give feedback to bike brands. So when a bike brand tells you this has been World Tour optimised and our pro riders have helped us develop the stiffness of the rear end, normally that's a load of rubbish. But Sometimes, when you've got riders like Nicky Terpstra, it actually is the case. Um, so it's interesting to hear more riders, especially someone so young as Fred Wright, um, sort of taking in, taking the time to really be invested in what they're riding. To embrace that tech. And I would, I would suggest that I, I didn't realise um, how quite how much, uh, I can never say his name, Morowich. Morowich? Mohorich, yeah. Mohorich, Mohorich. Um, how invested, you know, how much he was pushing his own agenda there, and it was him saying, "I'm going to do this to the team," and the team going, uh, "Yeah, go on there, mate." As opposed to a sponsor, maybe pushing for something. That's a non-sponsored seat post as well. Mm. It was a Fox, um, Fox SL dropper post. That's not a, Fox is not a brand that has anything to do. I don't even think anything to do with world tour teams no just has period to, oh it has to do with his x-files yeah so i'd say um, <laughs> exactly i'd say and the 20th century they yeah. were big sponsors of the 20th century yeah, but, <laughs> i would but i would say keep an eye out on uh on sunday 17th that's the sunday isn't it it's it is. sunday um for riders with little what look like little black boxes underneath their um saddles and this is not just on Sunday, but in subsequent races, because that would be a uh, SRAM Red Explore, well, technically a RockShox, uh, remote control dropper post, because they have Wi-Fi and a little blocker behind it. It's the battery plus the little servo to actuate it, as opposed to the cable-operated ones, which are most prevalent on gravel bikes. So that would be a little telltale sign to you know, see who's running a dropper post. You know what else I think we're going to see at Roubaix? Yeah. I think we're going to see SRAM one by group sets. Yep. I think we're going to see guys from Trek potentially running one ring at the front with a chain catcher because of the, the makeup of the race. You can ride you can ride that quite wide SRAM 12-speed group uh, cassette at the back, have like a 54 in the front. I think you're going to see cantilever brakes. You always see the odd rider, especially the guys who have come over from Cross, will have a cantilever on the sort of top bars there. I think we're going to see 30 to 32 mil tyres as well at real low pressures. Um, so I think we're going to see some really interesting some interesting tech, actually. Um, and I, I also think majority of riders, aero bikes as well. I think, yeah, aero bikes just seem to be just de facto the ones to race on now. And also, so this is a nice little tidbit for you. The Part of the reason why Fred didn't win is because it is insanely hard to make a breakaway stick because, and obviously he's not pedaling at this speed, but at 54 kilometers an hour, which is the kind of speed of a chasing pack when you're trying to chase down the breakaway, for a rider up ahead to ride that speed, 90% of the resistance is air resistance. If you're on the front of that chasing group, even though you are the front rider with your nose in the wind, you're still experiencing an 87 to 96% 
of the drag that the rider on their own is experiencing. So in essence, kind of 4%, 13% less drag. You take that to all the outer edges, those riders of a kind of flying V sort of peloton, it, go, it starts dropping down into the 70s. If you're in the mid-rear, you're experiencing 5 to 10% of the drag of the guy on his own in a breakaway, which is the equivalent energy outlay of you, tra- of you pedaling around about 12 to 15 kilometers per hour, which is insane. That's how much energy you're saving versus how much energy you have to expend. So it just puts, you know, puts people like Jens Voigt or Steve Cummings, those breakaway madmen, in a totally different light because they are comp- not just are they, you know, battling physics. They are battling insane odds that say they should. So arguably, if a breakaway ever sticks, it's because they've miscalculated. I mean, obviously that's kind of obvious, isn't it? But there's a severe miscalculation going on amongst the um, people operating the radios, commanding the peloton. Or, or on the flip side, those serial breakaway winners, your Steve Cummings, your Jens Voigt, yeah, your Thomas de Gens particularly, are incredible mathematicians and incredible poker players because they know they don't break away by chance. They break away in terms of probabilities and maths and understanding what's compared to the amount of time, the amount of time going uphill, downhill. And they will do months in advance targeting one stage of the tour knowing that if they get a certain amount of gap with a certain amount of time going that they can win that stage so which is pretty remarkable it's not just who's the strongest all the time um james joe this has been another episode of the cyclist magazine podcast uh thanks again to Lindsay for pulling it together as our producer um it was great to hear from Fred Wright. If you enjoyed what he had to say about Flanders and classics, we'll have more sort of similar content coming up. So give us a like. Make sure you follow us and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and until next time, we'll see you again later. I've got one more thing to add, Joe. I'm going to say it about Rebay. I'd say keep your eyes peeled for a suspension for Same reason, because Rock Shocks which is an arm of SRAM, a pushing gravel, explore, suspension forks. You could fit those through a road bike if you wanted to. You might see that road bike disappear at some point during the race because it might only just do the first sort of 20k just to get a bit of airtime. But I say, you know, that's an outside bet. Stick okay. it on down at William Hill. They'll take anything. <laughs> same same as a Trek hybrid bike fork as well. They said out. that couldn't <laughs> be done, and it was. Anyway, thanks again, James. Toodaloo. See you later. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is a GPS cycling computer like no other, which can unlock your rides to the full potential. James, which Karoo 2 feature stands out for you? Well, Joe, it's Karoo's mapping and navigation capabilities. No matter where in the world I'm riding my bike, Hammerhead says I can ride in full confidence with turn-by-turn navigation, have my route instantly rerouted if I decide to explore a new road, and even find a local coffee shop with its cycling-specific points of interest mapping For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you have to do is visit hammerhead.io right now, add all three items to your cart, and use the promo code cyclist pod at the checkout to get yours today.
This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use our special promo code. That's hammerhead.io promo code cyclistpod. That's promo code cyclistpod and get your Karoo 2 and your free custom colour kit and premium water bottle today.